Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts we have read. I'm Cameron, with me, as always, 56 episodes in, is Michael. Nope, I'm out. I'm out on this one. 56 episodes is too many. I'm opening the car door and jumping out like Ladybird. Oh, you, you doing a Ladybird over there? Uh-huh, I'm Ladybird and you. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to Columbia now. That's actually what you meant, is that you were you were submitting your application to Columbia. When you do a ladybird, quote unquote, <laughs> it's, you just submit your application to Columbia. Or wherever uh, she goes. I can't I remember taught that some New one York's. time. You did? I, I, I like taught that scene as uh-huh. a, uh, you know, it was like a, an analysis course. And it was like, you know, for part of the midterm, it was like, hey, I'm just going to give you a random scene. You got to do some formal analysis on it, right? Like, tell me. The pieces, and then tell me how the scene works. You know, t- talk about the editing, talk about the shots, things like that. And uh, got a lot of people talking about that and jumping out of the car part <laughs> of the ladybird. It's pretty attention grabby. It is. Oh, well, that's what they say when you're writing an essay. You know, uh-huh. they say you got to get an attention grabber. Mm-hmm. So the first sentence of any good essay should be, "And then I jumped out of the car while it was <laughs> while it was going." <laughs> Because that's how, you ready for this one? That's how you get emotion into your artwork, okay? Your essay, your film, your video game, your board game, okay? You put Ladybird in it. (laughs) No, today we are. This episode is about uh, how games move us emotion by design. Is there a colon in there? Uh, yes, I believe so. The The emotion by design is definitely like a little subtitle. Right, right, right. How games move. Well, it's interesting that MIT formatting. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, but yeah, it's by Catherine Isbister. Uh, what do we know about, uh, Catherine Isbister right now? Uh, right now, uh, she is a professor, uh, in the digital arts and new media department at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and so prior to that, uh, which I take to mean basically like the, mostly the amount of t- time that she would have been doing the research that constitutes this book up until about June, 2015, uh, she was an associate professor, uh, with, uh, joint appointments, uh, in the computer science department at New York university school of engineering and the NYU game center. Uh, and she was also the founding research director of the game innovation lab, uh, at NYU school of engineering, uh, during that time, or like, so, uh, she even further back got her PhD in, uh, communications and human computer interaction from Stanford. Uh, and up until the point, this is her third book, So up until the point this is published, uh, she had published two previous books. Uh, One was called Better Game Characters by Design, uh, and the other one was called Game Usability. Uh, And so you see, even in those titles, I think, kind of the... um, uh, the perspective that Isbister has, like, coming through, right, in uh, human-computer interaction, which is uh, maybe not a thing we've talked about a lot on this show. I don't know if it's come up. It's come up uh, maybe like a year ago or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite a few. I remember there was a long Discord uh, conversation about it, which is the only reason I believe it has come up before. But, yeah, we don't talk a lot about HCI because we have not read a lot of HCI-adjacent books, uh, which maybe we'll kind of get into in this episode. About I, I think we, we both have a um, 
uh, you know, classically psychoanalytically, we are uh, psychoanalytically, we're avoidant of, of <laughs> HCI inflected stuff just because of our predilections and our uh, interests, right? Not because mm-hmm. HCI is somehow bad. Right, 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 right. Well, that's yeah. The uh, I don't know if we want to jump right into it, but that was one of those things where um, the HCI perspective, like it has its uses. It's it's interested in certain questions, and those tend not to be mainly the questions that I am interested in, at least. Uh, and so I was interested in this book, uh, kind of uh, based on the title and sort of the the copy written on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think it's like for, for what it's doing, like for what it wants to do, it's a solid book. But like I'm you know, when I see like how video games move us emotion by design, I'm the kind of guy like the little little lightning starts going off on my brain. And I'm like, ooh, are we going to get some like affect theory or something like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and no, that's not you know, that's just not where the, the train is heading. Uh, and right, right. Uh, <laughs> that was not clear to me uh, based on um, sort of the write up on the back and everything. Uh, right. And yeah, maybe that also accounts for some of our differences because we've talked a little bit off mic about the book, and uh, I, I I knew what we were reading, and I mm-hmm. think you knew less about what we were reading. Well, I mean, like, let's talk briefly before we dive right into it, right? Yeah. Uh, because I think you're right. This this is going to be a pretty direct, straight through episode. Uh, you know, there, there's not going to be a lot of scene setting or or kind of explanatory work, although you know, I think it's unavoidable for us to do that in some ways. Um, but this is a very direct book. It is telling you what it wants to tell you, and it tells it what what it told you, you know, um, mm-hmm. which is probably pretty clarifying. And part of the reason that I I think this was on our long list, you know, of like books to check out. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that I was interested in doing it is I'd, I'd read pieces of it, but I'd never read the whole thing all the way through before, just like, you know, in one one chunk. Um, and I, I think maybe one of the reasons it's on our list um, is... Well, one of the reasons it's on our list is that people have requested it. But I think the other reason is that I see it taught a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, our show does a lot of different stuff. We are nine minutes in, if you're not familiar with what the show (laughs) is. Uh, It's the number one Lady Bird fan podcast uh, on the Internet. But secondary to that, this is a show that uh, brings the academic field of game studies to people who might not have time or the expertise or the inclination to read through books of of game studies. So if you're a game developer or you are an aspiring game designer, or if you are someone who is getting their education in game design and want to kind of change your horizons a little bit or, or engage with stuff out of coursework and you're interested in learning about books but not having to spend 10 hours reading the book, this is a good intro into those books. And as we always say, it's always to your benefit if you find a thing interesting or you find a criticism that we have made uh, to be compelling or whatever, it's probably in your interest to actually read the book yourself and engage with it. You know, uh, our episode, probably a good intro to a book, but it, it isn't the book. So that's a thing that's always worth thinking about. And so the the reason I was interested in doing this book when I saw it on the list, and I was like, oh, let's do that. You know, it kind of fits into our, our schedule here at the early part of the year is uh, because it's taught so much, right? And I think it's important for us to kind of have a good sense of that. I, I We've had several people and game design students in the Discord mention it, you know, as kind of an intro text that they had for game design. So I, and, and thinking about games and emotions, period. So I think this game gets around out there. I, I When I was looking up something about the book the other day, um, I like this was reviewed in Polygon when it got when it was released, right? Oh wow! You know what I mean, like it yeah. it kind of went wide um, 
in, in that way, too. So it's a resonant book. There are people in a lot of different sectors who have read it. I, you know, I've talked to working game designers who have read it and have, have spoken to me about it and, and have asked me if we were going to do it. So I thought it would be a good book to do, you know, uh, to kind of get our perspective on it, to kind of get it situated in the broader field of game studies, which is not really what the, the book is all that interested in doing. Um, and then to think about maybe some other methods outside of this book for thinking about emotion, like affect theory that you just mentioned. But had you uh, had you read it before? Were you familiar with this book at all? Oh no, not at all. Like I, well, what I said uh, at the top is absolutely mm -hmm. true. This was based entirely kind of on the the title and sort of what it suggested to me, what it it's, what its implications might be, and then just the the marketing copy on the back uh, that was just like yeah, like the, the basically. Uh, I guess that if again, if this is your first episode, one of the reasons that this was interesting to me is that uh, like the, the the phraseology of how, uh, let's say, media objects move us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is intriguing to me because that's a thing like I am fully on board with. Right. That is a thing that I think I've said in various permutations on various episodes of this show that uh, like one of my main kind of interests is how do different types of media objects uh, do things to elicit certain responses from their audience or their readers or their interlocutors or their viewers, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wanted to see what was the perspective here, right? How do video games move us in uh, whatever perspective or lens that Isbister is bringing to the table? Right. And and we don't often do this, but as, as you mentioned before, right, like the copy on the back of the book actually like mattered for you, right? You know, that was the thing that did that. And I do want to talk really kind of briefly about that. You know, we've talked before, I think actually we had a long discussion about uh, academic book series within publishers that I cut out of an episode <laughs> at one point <laughs> because we just kept going on about it. But if you're not familiar, I'm not going to do I'm going to leave this one in, I promise. Uh, but the, uh, the the way that they work, right, is that you have an academic publisher, in this case, MIT Press, um, and then within that, they have kind of seriesed books and unseriesed books, and, the, and seriesed just means that it's kind of a vertical or it's kind of a cluster of books that are all on the same topic or the same idea, and so if you're interested in reading about games or whatever, and you can go look in that series to maybe be introduced to other books that, that you're not familiar with. You know, uh, Patrick Krogan's book, Gameplay Mode, is in the Post-Humanity series, I believe. I might, I might have the series wrong, but it is seriesed. Uh, over at the Minnesota Press, for example. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that this is in the uh, Playful Thinking series. It's got its own little logo, and it's on all of the books. Um, it is a series that is edited at uh, MIT Press um, by uh, Jesper Yule, Jeffrey Long, and William Ericcio. Um And I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, the people other than, than Jesper. Um but, uh, but you know, and they have a little, uh, like, series forward at the beginning and things like that. But these books are really specifically um, game studies books that are targeted toward a wide audience that perhaps doesn't know all that much about games or is interested in learning some kind of basic ideas. So you might know a lot about games, right? You might be, um, you know, a college student who is really invested in, like, playing games, but you might not have the language that you need in order to analyze games or kind of d discuss their parts. And so this book came out in 2017, and the books that came out before it in the series are Yule's The Art of Failure, which is about 
but what, what, how this failure specifically is like a key term or a key idea, how does it show up in games? Uncertainty in games by Kostikian, which is the same thing, but uncertainty, how does that kind of structure play and why does that do it? Uh, Sikart's play matters, which is a little bit different. It's more like a philosophical investigation into like what, what play is doing. Um, works of game by John Sharp, which is, uh, kind of the, is game art that book. Right. Um, and, uh, then this book, how games move us. So, you know, these are all, and there are lots more books in the series at this point. Um, uh, yeah, there, there been another five or six, I think. I actually think Aaron Trammell's new book is in that series, the repairing playbook, I believe. Um, and so that, you know, they're all, they all tend to be this idea, you know, mm-hmm. some particular idea, how does it show up in games? And they seem kind of geared toward designers in a lot of ways, right? Like, here's a lot of examples. Here's a lot of things for you to go to look at to see how this thing is involved in games and how you might be able to bring it together for you. Um, the other thing I'll say about that really briefly, just about kind of the wrapper of the book, you know, things on the cover and other stuff here is that it has two blurbs. One is from Noah Falstein, who was the chief game designer at Google at the time of publication, and the other one is from Jane McGonigal. So it, that those two blurbs give you a sense of who is this this geared toward, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, these are people: the chief game designer at Google and Jane McGonigal, right? Those are big names, big positions uh, that speak to a broad game audience, um, much broader than like Michael and I. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> uh, in terms of like. You know, uh, like I'm looking for the blurb from Kashana Gray, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm looking for the blurb from James Hans, uh-huh, <laughs> you know? right? Right. I, uh, Jane McGonigal is not that doesn't light up anything in my head in terms of like, oh, this is like someone who's deep in the thing. She's someone with a lot of prestige uh, inside of games and then outside of games too. You know, this is you can go to Barnes and Noble and you can pick this book up and you can see Jane McGonigal and you can go, oh, I read that book. You know, I'm interested in that book or those books. Um, this person vets this book. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, uh, this is it, everything. What I'm saying is that the series that this is in, uh, the length of the book, it's, it's, uh, you know, 150 pages, the blurbs on the back, the way it sells you a big thing kind of on the, uh, actual write up on the back, all of those things scream to me, general audience book. And so we have to approach the book from those terms, I think. Right. And, and not just a sort of general audience, but, um, and this gets at what I was saying about sort of like what I was hoping the book would be versus what it is, is that this is mm-hmm. a book that is ultimately geared toward like practicalities of design. Right. Um, right. Which is, I mean, absolutely solid, right? Like if you want something that's going to explain to you kind of the the various ways that uh, you should maybe think about how an NPC is positioned in the world and how it communicates to a player uh, in like very brief kind of examples um, this is a good book to read because, uh, uh, as Bister talks about that a couple times, uh, but, you know, I was hoping for the, oh, we're going to use theory to crack into experience kind of thing. And this is really a kind of like, hey, like here is a kind of, um, pattern or design, uh, 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 type, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that so-and-so developer has used to such and such an end. Right. Uh, think about that. Right. Maybe you could do it. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or maybe you never recognized this before. Now you can recognize it and have kind of a word for it. Right. Um, and so, yeah. So uh, through in radio, we say all this to say there's a lot of like, I mean, I guess sometimes we go for like a full hour before we ever talk about the book. So I guess this is not that weird <laughs> to do, spend 15 minutes. But the reason we're doing this is like, I think the normal mechanisms for what we do in this show, which is like 
engage with the theoretical presuppositions of the thing and kind of lay those out for the listener. And thanks so much to everyone for listening. Um, doing that kind of stuff that, that in some ways that doesn't really make sense with this book. Um, it, it's harder to do that. And so I think we're going to have some interventions here of like, Hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we thought about these other things? I actually have quite a few of those that I, I kind of want to, to look at. Um, but ultimately like this is a book that's about outlaying some ideas about emotion and design through a very particular, uh, perspective, you know, this kind of HCI ish, um, form, uh, the human computer interaction form. Um, and if, if the arguments in the book don't line up for you or you, you're scratching your head a little bit, right. It, it's because this is a scalpel, right? It's not a, it's not a machete, you know, right. um, mm-hmm. um, uh, something like, uh, I mean, Kashana books, uh, Kashana Gray's book, right. It's a machete, right. It is, it is giving us ways of cleaving through huge parts of, um, of like culture, right? Of, of, of our techno culture, the way it works, how it operates. It's giving us these big theoretical forms. It's giving us a lot of ways to approach lots of different objects. You know, it kind of neatly slices through lots of different forms and functions in the world. You can, you can use it to do lots of radically different things. This is a book that, that that's very finite, very specific. It's for thinking about how emotion is communicated to players in games. You know, and so the way you have to approach it, the way you have to think the book and and ultimately what the limitations of the book are, are, you know, quite different. Mm-hmm. OK, well, so with all of that said, uh, you want to get into the uh, the intro here? Yeah, uh, the intro is very brief I and mean, it provides a summary of everything that's going to be in the later book. So that's helpful. Uh, but mainly what this thing does is kind of rhetorically position uh, this book and uh, what it is where it is trying to make its intervention. Mm-hmm. And, and this is also um, sort of important, I think, because uh, there's two things going on here. Uh, one is that this book, uh, well, uh, can I, did I, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, I, I quoted this so I can just read it out. So mm-hmm. uh, Isbister talks about uh, how she is interested in uh, undoing the uh, common and like i'm putting common here in like uh scare quotes because Mm -hmm. how common this idea is i think actually really depends on who you are uh and this really like shows how the audience uh or like potential audiences are being constructed here Mm -hmm. um the the common idea uh that games uh don't really have that they're emotionally shallow or they're alienating and so on and so forth you may have this idea, you there again in scare quotes, because I think many of the people listening to this show are already like they do not need to be convinced of this. Right. Um, but this is a book that is being written to a kind of uh, uh, implied audience with a certain perspective on games that, frankly, I think means that they are not as potentially familiar with playing games or kind of like basically the social and and like community aspects of games that in the years since its publication have only be- become, uh, I think, more central and important to the way that like major games run. Yeah, um, the, the, this book is written at the claim, directly toward the claim, uh, you know, that Spielberg quote, you know, no one's ever cried on level 12. Right, exactly. You know, I, that's what it is geared toward responding to in a general sense. Right, and and so uh, I that's definitely like a, a position to take rhetorically. Like that that's a uh, idea that people out in the world have, and I understand why Spister has it. But as I said, like I uh, this is 
this is not a thing I personally need to be convinced of, right? I'm already on board, you know, like waving my little video games flag, like absolutely video games give us emotions. Like, let's talk about that. And so yeah, I'm out here crying about Solid Snake and shit in like 1999. <laughs> like, I don't need to be convinced about about that. But right. Like, as you say, this is a audience construction move, right? Right. You know, Isbister comes in the introduction and says, people are saying blah, blah, blah. You know, you're going to run through that, not just not literally blah, blah, blah. But people are saying all these things, right, about how games are not emotional. So then, therefore, this book is necessary in order to speak to those people, but also to identify how emotions show up in games. Mm -hmm. The um, other thing that happens here is um, is Bister is talking about when this shows up in the back copy too that like we were at a renaissance moment, quote unquote, in games, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is. Uh, uh, it, as we go through the book, like based on the examples that she's engaging with, becomes pretty clear that um, a lot of her thinking is being influenced by like the turn towards serious games in the late 2000s mm -hmm. and kind of uh, uh, the consequences of that in like the indie game spaces in the 2010s. Uh, so this is a, a book that is written from and to a very specific point in time. Um, and it is weirdly enough kind of a time that I feel like is ending at the point when the book comes out. That's not to, again, not to yeah. say that like the, that that's a fault of the book. Right. But it is one no. of those really interesting, like m movements of history, right. That this book is so informed by a particular like ethos in the indie independent game sphere and sort of the art game sphere. And even to some extent, right in the uh, like triple a game space, uh, that is, I think, at this point, functionally over. We have moved into kind of like a new paradigm for like gaming culture, whatever that is and however you want to define it. But it seems to me that like uh, the concerns have definitely shifted it in certain fundamental ways to kind of like basically taking fundamentally uh, online, connected, cooperative, uh, uh, digitally mediated play as kind of a starting principle rather than a thing that kind of shows up occasionally as it does here. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the this book comes out in 2017. Like all books about games, in some ways, it's a victim of time happening, right? Right, like, right, right. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that quite a lot on sh on the show. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The kind of key texts that show up here throughout the whole book are overwhelmingly uh, not commercial games, right? Like, um, you know, if we were if we were looking at commercially oriented, you know, uh, games for wide audiences that show up on traditional platforms, there are fewer of those than there are independent games and serious games um, and, and you know, like serious games and that, that shows up at games for change, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of brand name, serious games. Um, and what's really wild of, of do of reading through the book is being like, Oh yeah, I've played like all of these games when they came out right. and I'd forgotten a bunch of them. Um, uh, which also is kind of interesting too, of like, well, I, how effective is the thing, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, how lasting are these things? If I played these games in their moment of their greatest power and I totally forgot that I played them. Right. But maybe mm -hmm. that's not required. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the paradigm shift that you're talking about, um, uh, th that, that matters is that like the last of us is about making you have an emotional reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that is the last of us part one and two. It is, it is playing on the themes of, like high key melodrama in order to generate, you know, significant emotions, God of war, like the datification of games, like period, right. From right. kind of 2012, 2013 forward. 
um, in the AAA space, they're all about, you know, generating an emotional reaction in players. Now, whether those are successful or not, I don't know. Like, I'm not here to evaluate that thing. But I think it's important to note that at the same moment that all of these games that are being talked about in this book are kind of playing through, I think there is, like, a very strong, like, central, you know, uh, to the industry maneuver that is happening that's entirely about, like, okay, we figured out all these other kind of risk-reward um, you know, Skinner box ideas, right? And you know mm-hmm. that's continued in its, its in its own way, right? Finding the fun, quote unquote, right? We figured that out, right? So, how do you generate more longitudinal connection with these things? Well, you do things like Assassin's Creed, so you create long running story that gets people emotionally invested in that, right? Or you uh, play into melodrama or like high drama or uh, datification, right? These strong emotional connections that people can bring to it. Um, you play on those and you kind of play them out very cinematically and use aesthetic, um, very familiar aesthetic forms to do that, right? You know, it seems to me that that at the same time that this is, book is coming out, as you're saying, you know, there's this independent and non-commercial for the most part thread about really getting emotions into games and using different methods to do that. But then there's a very strong, very tried and true, just to be frank, right? Like uh, movies about dads and familial connection, are, they're not new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the dadification of game stuff was borrowing from 40 years of, of um, you know, ba- cinema operation. And, uh, you know, that's happening at the same time, too, on a parallel track. And that's not really commented on too much here in the book. And it, it doesn't have to, right? But that is a notable thing, I think. But I think you're right. This Whatever is being written about here is has been absorbed or contained or eaten by the, the broader industry. Most of the methods that are produced in this book or, or spoken about in this book as ways of connecting people and generating gameplay emotion in them, they are in almost every game now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that none of them are like, oh, wow, you could, this hasn't been played with too much before. Like, we are, you know, we're in the end game now <laughs> as far as <laughs> emotion is concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that very roundabout, I guess, uh, does bring us into chapter one, whereas Bister does lay out kind of her theory of what what are the unique affordances of games or for games as a format, uh, what makes them capable actually I back up a little bit mm-hmm. uh, is Bister starts by saying uh, all art objects or all media objects are about designing emotion, right? Like mm-hmm. when, when you someone writes a story, they are thinking about how it is going to make the reader feel. And then they are like uh, prioritizing certain feelings over others, gearing the story toward producing more of those or intensifying them, so on and so forth. Same thing with film, same thing with music, same thing with visual arts. Video games are no different. Uh, says his bister. Um, and uh, the thing that then makes games uh, important or unique or distinct from all of that other stuff are uh, two particular uh, capabilities or affordances of the medium. Uh, the first one is choice or meaningful choice, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just a, a, but choice in, in general, right? That uh, a, a game is... Uh, unlike a film or a book or whatever, is something that is uh, capable of querying the interactor specifically um, and having them make a choice and then playing out the effects or the consequences of that choice within the game world, the story, the narrative, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's thing number one. Thing number two is flow. 
which we've covered extensively at various points. We have a whole episode on it uh, that you can go listen to if you haven't heard that one. It's a concept that we have historically been pretty critical of. Uh, but here I don't think it's worth really like digging into all of that other than to say that like, hey, this is a concept that we have a lot of concerns about in terms of like its origin, uh, its theorization and some of its applications. Uh, but is Bister uh, really does like slim it down to kind of uh, basically the the design philosophy of flow uh, of um, right. Right. Like the game needs to have a sort of a, a slow escalation of challenge that never quite outpaces uh, the player's abilities so that they feel like. Uh, you know, they are encountering things that they can't quite do, but things that don't feel so impossible that they give up. Right. There's always mm -hmm. the uh, feeling of being able to, like, do it next time and like to continue on to progress so on and so forth. And this is considered a a hallmark of, of good game design uh, that, that can be the case. Uh, but, you know, the the way that this occasionally gets formulated is that uh, like that's just what good games are. Uh and just to like, I guess, you know, slide in under the door there a little bit is like, you know, sometimes you design a game that doesn't induce a flow state, right? Like, uh, well, what happens when we say that, like, the primary thing that a game is for is uh, designing toward and inducing a flow state in the player? Like, what sorts of experiences uh, or uh, possibilities get kind of swept under the rug when we do that? And that's just a you right. know question mark to hang over that uh, uh, for the time being. Right. Yeah. I mean, like game design, uh, education, game design, um, uh, textbooks and game designers, uh, you know, are very comfortable uh, with norms. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's what they trade in. Right. Yes, like, exactly. I don't I don't mean that critically at all. Right. Like when you make a thing and then you start telling other people how to make a thing, you produce norms of things that are good and bad. Now, weirdly enough, you know, like this is this works. We can predictably say it works, uh, you know, creating loot boxes. That 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 works. That induces people into certain kinds of behavior. We know that to be a fact, right? Mm -hmm. um, or creating uh, longitudinal experiences that are always kind of trickling content out to you. We know that increases time on device. You know, I've talked about this before, but Ubisoft even talks about that in their uh, investor reports, right? Like the thing that they measure is not how many players that they have. I mean, that's that's a number they have, but that is. Uh, co-equal in their investor reports. I've been reading all these for, for my Assassin's Creed book. That's co-equal with time spent on device. That's just as important of a metric for them, right? And so there are like methods in order to do that. You know, and we can think about the uh, very public um, kind of arguments that happened in 2022 around Elden Ring versus like other designs of games, right? You know, there was a lot of discourse about Elden Ring does things wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And yet people still play it. So what is happening? You know, there was this kind of question mark around that, right? And a lot of debate, you know, you can you can watch the YouTube videos and read the Twitter threads still. Uh, but that's all to say, right? Like they do that. And so, you know, here on this show, I think we are often very critical where we in our hearts, I think we are poisoned by post-structuralism. And when people start, you know, uh, introducing norms, we start asking where those norms come from. You know, that's a thing that you and I, I believe, are really interested in as as critics uh, and thinkers. Right. Um, mm -hmm. How are they produced and how are they enforced and how are they disciplined, right? So what are the mechanisms that bring you into a, a, a moment where you start saying this norm that is produced is the best? And then what, when you start moralizing it, right? So it's not just best, but it is good, 
uh, and it's it's good that it's the best, right? Right. Um, and that's our criticism of flow. You can check out. I mean, we have lots of criticisms of flow, but I think that's at the at the core of it, right? Is that it has ideological components that sneak in a lot of other values, a lot of other morals, a lot of other mores uh, that that you and I, I think, both think are fairly destructive for like human thriving <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i don't think we make uh, too many bones about that but if you want to listen to that episode it is episode 23 of the show um, which is easily found on rangedtouch.com or you can scroll backward in your podcast thing of choice um and uh but yeah all of these things that the other thing i wanted to add to what you just said because you you've actually absolutely outlaid what's going on here and is mr explicitly says these are her two key terms right choice mm-hmm. and flow um, that that all of the rest of this book is going to kind of interweave with these things and how they function with one another. Um, and notably, what's happening here uh, at the very front with choice is what's called a medium specificity argument, which is to say that certain media forms do things that other media forms do not. And so then, therefore, they have unique capabilities that others don't. And this is choice being attached to games is probably the most common medium specificity argument of our time, right? I can't think of one that that pervades more. Yeah, no, I feel like that's always uh, uh, the kind of thing that comes up, right? There's something about mm-hmm. choice that is always presented as like the, the defining quality of what a game is, uh, right. whether it's like within the context of it being a simulation uh, or a sort of like multi-form story. Uh, that's that's the thing that I think has come up like just in multiple times uh, throughout this show, really, and in, in various uh, disciplines from various perspectives. Right. And it's really funny to me that that is the one that is so pervasive because there are others like I'm not a medium specificity person. Right. Like my book, if people wait, you know want to read that, uh, theoretically, fingers crossed, y'all for a uh, paperback this year. Um, but you can get your library to request it for you. But I have a long section in there about a long chapter, really long chapter on The Last of Us and how it inherits all these cinematic techniques and how. The, the our unwillingness as, as game thinkers or our, our uninterest to think about the non-medium specificity of games is actually kind of hampering our ability to, to think through that game and analyze it. Weirdly enough, the TV show, show just replicated the stuff that I was writing about, which is fascinating. <laughs> um, but there are like other medium-specific things about games I think are pretty notable, such as data management, right? Mm-hmm. Like most games, not all games, and just as not all games have choice, it's just common, but most games in this day and age ask you to think numerically, right? Or they're asking you to think kind of empirically about values. And I mean values in the sense of like jump height or uh, length or uh, spreadsheet management in terms of like stats, things like that. And they're asking you to make like inferential jumps about how those things will interact with other things, right? That seems to me to be pretty specific about games. Never had to watch a movie in my life where I've had to think about any of that. Um <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? I've never I'm not watching Antonioni and being like, all right. So when he hits that tennis ball, that (laughs) that fake tennis ball at the end. Right. That's not happening. Um, And but choice gets, you know, because choice is also like really appealing and great. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And interesting and uh, tied up with values of freedom and capability. Right. Whereas you being downstream from a bunch of numbers and having to run that rough math in your head to figure out if you've equipped the right long sword or not. Right. That's not, that doesn't valorize anything. Right. Uh, that sounds like management. That sounds like work. Um, hint, hint. I think maybe a medium specific part of games, they ask you to do work, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and that, that we like love that we valorize it. It's in my book too, I guess. But 
notable here. I, what, I'm saying all that to say there are other routes to thinking about this, right? There are other key terms we could use to be doing that. Isbister is choosing two. Uh, and choosing two that have a lot of resonance with a lot of other game studies. Choice, with all these attending values, and then flow, with also all these other attending values. Are there, are there things that really stuck out to you here in this chapter, Michael, about playing those out? Because that's kind of what the chapter is. It's just kind of playing out how choice and how flow show up in games to kind of set us up for the rest of the book where these are put into different contexts. Um, well, I think uh, the main... Uh, thing that jumped out at me in terms of the examples. Actually, I'm just going to name a couple of the examples and then get to the one that I thought was sort of worth uh, pointing out because of some sure. weird yeah. resonance. So yeah. uh, here we talk about uh, like Waco Resurrection, which I don't know if mm -hmm. we've ever talked about before, but is like an <laughs> FPS mod that uh, puts you in the shoes of someone in like the compound during the mm -hmm. Waco siege, the Branch Davidian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an Edo Stern game, mm -hmm. uh, who, who's kind of arts game creator. I think we have mentioned it. I think it, maybe yeah. it comes up in uh, the Gordon Kaleha book, the maybe. game in game. I don't remember the name of that book, yeah. but we have talked about it somewhere, but not at length. This is, I think, the longest uh, write up we've seen of it. Okay, yeah. So like that comes up, and that's really interesting because that's as you said, it's an art game, and it's like doing all sorts of weird things where like people have to like wear helmets that make them look like the uh, cult leader. Am I David, David Koresh? Yeah, David Koresh. Am I conflating things? This, I'm correct, right? Like, this is the one I where this happens. They have the microphone that has things, too. I don't remember a. Uh, 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 no, yes, it does. Yeah. It looks like they are all wearing polygonal helmets in the, in the screenshot here. Um, player wore David Koresh helmet masks and had embedded speakers and microphones. So yeah, yeah. all of those. Yeah, just some 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 incredible stuff there. Uh, mm -hmm. We also talk about like cart life, uh, which was a very I don't think I hear many people talk about it these days, but it was huge back in what 2012, 2013 when that came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, unplayable today, right? Isn't I think that so. True? I think Is it so. still offline? It was off. Uh, Richard Hoffmeyer's the. Um, the uh, developer of that, uh, really notable developer in that moment. If you've never heard of Richard Hoffmeyer, uh, you should, you know, maybe go go do that work. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, I believe it is currently unplayable. Dang. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, sort of the questions there of like, um, uh, you know, how do we? Uh, the other, I guess, thing that fell out of this when we were kind of like laying the groundwork is that for Isbister, uh, like one of the primary questions for her is like, how do not not just how do games like design for emotion, um, but how do they design for kind of connective emotion, which can be things like empathy, but isn't necessarily, especially if it's like you know, like sending someone like a little treat on the MMO, someone that you know, or something like that, right? That's actually like person to person, but um, uh, it's not about empathy. It's about sort of like being able to uh, show social connection. Uh, here she's thinking a little bit about like, uh, where does identification happen? How does that happen? And so in cart life, uh, you play one of three people who uh, operate a food cart and you have to make all sorts of choices about like how to manage your supplies and how to manage your money and how to like deal with your customers, right? You got to make small talk mm -hmm. with them because that's part of the job, even though it's emotionally draining. And then you have like your personal issues, things going on in your life that you have to manage when you're not doing work. Um so, it looks like just just an FYI, really quickly. Uh, it looks like Hoffmeyer has uploaded it to the AGS file okay. uh, to uh, the Internet Archive, mm -hmm. uh, and it also looks like someone has taken that and then 
uh, ported it to the App Store, but perhaps not attached to Hoffmeyer. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I can't really tell right now. Anyway, so it is. I it is playable. Is what I'm saying. Okay. Yep. Uh, but uh, this is all sort of mainly geared for Isvister to talk about how, like, hey, uh, basically, like. People do have emotions about games, right? People playing Cart Life uh, feel anxious and upset in the ways that the the player avatars are scripted to perform being anxious and upset by the circumstances of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also just get some wild card examples here, like uh, Love Plus, which was like a Nintendo DS dating sim uh, where some guys could like go to a particular resort in, I believe it was in Japan, and like have a date weekend with uh characters from the game which meant that like they got to hang out with like a cardboard standee of these characters or something like that and they could also do like a marriage ceremony i think or no no one guy goes to um where does he go he he like flies to an island where he gets married to a fictional character yeah let me let me pull it up uh they were married in guam yes okay 2009 all right. So again, happy. yeah, yeah. People, people it's from uh, the source of this image is know your meme. <laughs> people have emotions about uh, uh, games yeah. is, is kind of the point here. We also talk about the Sims and write the like. What are the various ways that the Sims uh, models like expressivity in its characters? Right. How do you know when a Sim is happy versus sad? So on and so forth. Uh, but then. Uh, kind of the really key example for me is talking about uh, Brenda Romero's Train, right. uh, which is a game where uh, you are like, I think it's it's like a physical like tabletop game mm-hmm. uh, where yeah. you have to arrange like little people in train cars. Uh, so like sort of in, in the maximum like efficient way. And then that train goes off and it turns out at the end um, uh, that the train is going to a concentration camp uh, and yes. you right, So you are now complicit in, uh, uh, you know, the, the genocide of the Jews during World War Two. Um, and this was there's a lot of emotional response about this uh, is Bister walks through like uh, describing people who are playing the game and how they get really into kind of like the puzzle of like, yeah, how do I arrange all these little people in these little cars? How do I do this in, in the maximally efficient way? Um, and then, oh, it turns out what I was doing was this. That's horrible. Like people are crying. They're tearful. Um, and this is uh, illustrative for his Bister because this is a, a great example of like the flow thing uh, along with the choice thing, right? People are uh, making choices about how to arrange these uh, little doodads uh, that are representative of people on a train car. Uh, and uh, as they're kind of like doing that, they realize like, oh, I could actually move this around and do it this way. And that's more efficient so on and so forth. And then it culminates in seeing like, oh, the result of your efficiency, the result of your flow state, the result of your actions was uh, this absolutely horrible thing. And I thought that this was interesting, uh, mainly because back in the flow episode, uh, Chixamahai uh, straight up says like Eichmann probably experienced flow while uh, while scheduling the trains to the concentration camps. Um, Right. And that like I, you know, I bring this up because it really does condense down for me, at least like the critiques that you and I tend to leverage about flow, which is like, yeah, it seems like you can make flow apply to a lot of things. So what does it mean that Eichmann is doing basically the same thing that this game is doing? Uh, but the end point for him is like, though, this is just good. 
right? Like that's what he well, wanted to right. do. Well, because it's everywhere, right? Uh, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing about Flo here, right? I mean, Flo in this book is performing the exact thing that we are critical of in that episode, right? Which is that game design language and game design uh, implementation of flow shaves off a lot of parts of flow in order to make it into a design operation right mm -hmm. and, and and kind of to cleave it off from the world really right to if if what you say is games are good at flow and in fact games are so good at flow that they're like the optimal form that kind of discourages you from having to think about other media that do flow or other just experiences in life what's clarifying about reading that original book and why i think that episode is very helpful for us in particular right is that Chick Sekmiha is really clear that like flows everywhere all the time. And the important thing or the interesting thing for him is how you har harness it, right? Mm -hmm. Like people accidentally walk into flow all the time. The way he's able to find flow is he just looks at people talking about similar kind of phenomena, you know, you know, personal phenomena. And he, you know, puts the name flow onto that, you know, crystalline structure that shows up in all these different categories of life. And so what Isbister does is the thing that we're critical there, which is like, Looking to Geno to Genova Chin specifically, and then looking to like the operationalize operationalization woof that uh, of flow that Chicksek Mihai does kind of later in his career, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, after the nineties, uh, which is like the 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 public discourseification of flow, right? You know, here it is, here's its qualities, here's how you get there, and that's the the reason we did flow as a book is that's kind of the first version of that as a design implementation. You mm -hmm. know, uh, before that, it's all this positive psychology stuff that that looks a little bit different and is aimed toward a different audience, and so. I mean, that's not being critical of Isbister. Most people in game studies do this. This is right. this is so common that that's why we we kind of did that book. Um, but it's but it it does illustrate something, right? Which is that if you begin from the position of flow in games is the best operationalized form of flow, and and games do them best, then therefore it kind of puts you into a world in which you are only looking to games to see flow, mm -hmm. um, and it puts you in this exact position that you're talking about. Right. I think it's it's so handy for me because uh, like in in all of its theorizations uh, from Csikszentmihalyi specifically, right, flow is presented as something that exists outside of ideology and contrasting right, right. his Eichmann example with what Brenda Romero is doing uh, with almost the same pieces, right, mm -hmm. shows how important the ideological end of flow is is like like you need that like you need to consider that like you need to think like what is going on in Eichmann's world that uh he can do basically this same operation uh but doesn't have what is presented here as like the grand salutary artistic gesture of like oh i realized like something horrible was happening and now i'm having an emotional response to it Right. And, right. you know, Romero is very clear about that. I, you know, I've I have sat down in front of of train. I, I didn't play a full game of train, but I stood and watched people do it in a gallery setting. Um, I mean, it's a fairly predictable game. You know what I mean? Like it's a well made game. Um, but, you know, I if you sit down in front of it, you, it's not astonishing. Right. In the sense of like it's a board game and it's very clearly a board game. And, you know, when before I had ever seen it, I had been like kind of shit talking it right and i was like in my early 20s right so whatever and Brenda romero was very friendly enough to to uh in a way she never had to do right like in a million years 
Um, but very politely corrected me and was like, actually, you know, it, it is not flat ideologically. Most people don't get caught up in this game and just like <gasps> realize what's occurring here. Oh, my gosh. Most people while playing realize that what is going on and everything that's happening, there's not a lot of surprise for them. And so they begin resistant play immediately. And it seemed like for her in that very short kind of conversation that I had with her d digitally mediated, it seemed pretty clear that what was interesting to her, at least me reading, you know, her her comments was that that happens, right? That mm -hmm. it, the, the game itself becomes a provocation actually to do the opposite of something like flow, right? To immediately generate self-criticism right? Um, and things like that, which which is, you know, uh, something notable here. Um, where, wait, where does shame come up? Um, oh, yeah, right. This is also in this chapter, right? So she says, this is on page seven, it's not uncommon or shameful to cry over something happening in a film or a book, but it's uncommon to see that happen in a game. Um, and I, 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 that's, that to me is tied to, to train, right? Because like part of the thing of train, if train works, you know, the way it is both intended to work and the way that the book is claiming that it works, right? Is that its power is in choice, right? Like you're choosing to do these things and they are things that you should be ashamed of because mm -hmm. they are tied into a history of violence, expropriation, um, uh, and genocide, right? You mm -hmm. know, and the other games oh, yeah. that Romero made as a part of that, right? There's one that is about the Middle Passage, and there's one that is about native genocide. Uh, I've never seen those played, um, but I know they exist. Mm. Uh, or and maybe they aren't complete. I don't know. I've never seen them set up or anything like that. Um, but, you know, and th they're all about uh, shame, right? I mean, they are about inducing a sense of, holy shit, look at this thing. You should be... Um, as, as a contemporary human being, you should be ashamed or um, aware or engaging with the reality of this, mm -hmm. you know, these things that happened in the world. Uh, and I think maybe Irish colonization is another one of them. I don't know if that one got made, though. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not up on my Romero um, mechanic is the message games. Mm -hmm. um, but but that but also like notably, right, like. That's not as flat as it's presented here in this book, right? Like, in fact, if you are a, uh, I mean, like, think about Kevin Smith crying about Marvel movies, right? right. Like, perhaps our most our, our most uh, indicative example of a weepy man in the world, right? <laughs> and people just roast the shit out of him incessantly for it, right? Like, right. for for feeling like real emotions, right? And like, it, we have to be honest, or I have to be honest, it is silly to watch him do that. It is silly to watch. Kevin Smith crying about a Marvel movie, but I, but it, it is presented as culturally shameful that he is doing that. But also like outside of my own body, logically, realistically, I have to be like, well, yeah, he's just, he is someone who cares deeply about these things and right. it matters to him. Right. Like, but those things are decoupled actually. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I can see something that is culturally mediated to me that I'm supposed to understand as shameful culturally, but also rationally know that it definitely is not mm -hmm. right. Like, like emotions are not get it or not emotions are not binary they are gradient based um and you feel those things all the time um and they function in different ways right uh and yeah i think absolutely it's like uh, considered uh uh weird if you're like are crying at a book culturally I mean, maybe we are in different social circles maybe my like 
experience of so uh, you know of uh culture in the south is radically different <laughs> which it is in lots of ways right but like if i went around talking about how much i cry at films as like a man in my 30s i would be roasted mm-hmm. uh like absolutely and it would be treated as shameful and so i think a thing that's worth thinking about here in this book broadly a thing that really i keyed into over the course of reading it is that Look, we talked about this before. I mentioned it before. Where norms start showing up, I start having question marks. And there is a certain amount of norm um, statement in this book about what what emotions are acceptable in what conditions and how they function. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I start wondering, well, how not how are they produced by game mechanics or how are they produced by game situations, but how are they culturally mediated right. and how are they recognizable? Right. This is that you and I both have a love for Cyan Nye. Right. And this is why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that she is. That's the only thing that she writes about. I mean, not <laughs> literally, but. You know, is she not the most uh, incisive critic of how culture tells us what emotions are acceptable in what situation? Mm-hmm. Nope, that's... Uh, <laughs> I was just rereading the, the the theory of the gimmick, and, like, that's that intro lays it out so clearly, right? That, like, it's about... Uh, it's about having a thing and then recognizing that the way the world talks about the thing modulates how you experience it. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you are not sad because you looked at a thing. You're not sad because you saw something sad happen. You are sad because you were in a cultural context that informs you that you should feel sad. Um, right. And that neither of those eliminate the other. Right. Like one is not overriding the other, but they they are mutually constitutive. Right. You cannot have an emotion that is not in some ways culturally mediated as right. visible to you or acceptable or necessary. Right, right. Sadness as kind of a platonic object does not uh, reside within, I don't know, the video game that you're playing. Right, right. right. It doesn't li- <laughs> like sadness doesn't live there, right? right. It lives everywhere around it. <laughs> uh, chapter two, social play, designing for multiplayer emotions. PVP Garfinkled City of Heroes. I love that. Yes. No. Fate, like all timer line in this book. <laughs> uh, I make the Lego racers go. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Like that's a, that's a, that's an all timer. You know. Uh. Uh. But but Gar Garfinkel, the city of heroes. Is, that's pretty good. That's pretty. <laughs> do you want to explain that, or you you want to just let that go? No, we're gonna let that one go. If you want to understand what's happening there, read the book. We're moving to the next chapter now. Um. So yeah, chapter two is uh. Uh, and this is what, another thing I think I was gesturing at at the beginning when I said it feels like this book is um, coming at the end of a moment um, mm-hmm. where uh, discussions of multiplayer games are always so sort of separated from single player games here. Whereas it, from my perspective, at least, and I know that there are like still single player games being produced, uh, but like multiplayer games, online games, games as a service seem now to dominate so much of what uh, like mainstream gaming is. Uh, that in th- this this book takes is almost axiomatic this uh, division between single player and multiplayer games uh, that I think has become a lot blurrier in the years since uh, publication. Right. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Right. That's not his Bister's fault. It's just like again noticing like, hey, history is happening. We've we've seen a shift here. Um, right. Uh, and so she talks about uh, basically that there are kind of three key ways. Uh, for her that social play gets produced or designed for. Um, These are coordinated action, uh, role play, and then just like social situations in general. Um, And so like uh, uh, in the case of uh, coordinated action, she talks about Little Big Planet, 
uh, and how when you're doing a multiplayer game of Little Big Planet, you have all sorts of little emotes that your little uh, sack person can do uh, to like let the other players know like, hey, you should go stand over there, right? And you can like point and then like do a thumbs up when they do it right or like frown when they do it wrong. Uh, and this provides ways of players to communicate with one another to uh, coordinate action. Uh, moving into roleplay, then, we have something like uh, City of Heroes. This is kind of one of the primary examples here that is all about how, uh, like, the, the thing that I think, I never played City of Heroes, but whenever it comes up, like, there are people who speak of this game so fondly, and so much of their uh, fondness for it seems to reside in uh, just, like, the characters that they made up and sort of, like, the concepts behind them and how much fun it was to kind of, like, play that person. Uh, and there's a whole list that uh, Isbister gives um, uh, that I think some players gave her of, like, characters that they made. Uh, the one that I copied into my notes because it was my favorite was Organized Mime. Uh, and I'm just quoting here from page 59. Organized Mime. He was an evil mime who was super strong and awesome to play. All those characters are great. Like the, the, all the characters that are listed here are like all timers. Yes. I just love that. Like what gets it for me is like organized mime. He was an evil mime. All right. Great. Perfect. Uh, I like the, the illustrated man who had a lot of tattoos and is good at martial arts. Like yes. that's great. Uh, uh, so there's that. Uh, and then we also talk about Anna Anthropy's keep me occupied, which was like mm -hmm. an arcade cabinet. Um, that uh, Anthropy uh, designed and built for the uh, Occupy protests in Oakland. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was intended to be a kind of um, uh, like, I mean, it was also it was clearly like a piece of social art. Right. But the way that the game worked is that uh, uh, I, I may be mangling this in my recollection now, but it was one of these things where do, do you want me to do it? Yeah, I, got, do it. I got you do it. Get it down. Head. Uh, every person who played, uh, there were a series of levers and switches that like allowed you to go to progress further in the game. You know, you're kind of, I think going left to right and kind of bottom to up and, uh, you, you only had a certain amount of time to play. And mm -hmm. so you were trying to get to the next switch, but your character was there eternally. Right. So like at the end of your game session, the next person, if you got to a switch that opened a door, opened a, a you know, uh, the next, uh, little area to go to the next person who played would be able to go to that area. So the idea is that, you know, every person's contribution contributes to the final goal, even if you were not the person to actually get to the end of the game. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's like, you know, cooperation in social settings and like a very sort of different uh, uh, case because here the arcade cabinet is like a physical thing that's being carted around between protest sites uh, and people who are playing it are like uh, actually like sort of basically like it's almost like a relay race, right? Like passing the baton. Um, and this is uh, sort of paralleled with or not parallel, but like a, a contrasted with going back to City of Heroes and how that game got Garfinkled. Uh, which is uh, a term that is comes from a researcher whose first name I don't remember. Uh, oh, here is Harold Garfinkel. I'm just going to quote here from page 68. <clears throat> uh, uh, Garfinkel and his students, he was a sociologist, studied the creation and preservation of social order. They conducted, quote, breaching experiments where they would violate social norms by perhaps standing very close to a conversation partner or bargaining in a department store and observe how people tried to repair or restore order. Sidebar. Uh, we just call this trolling these days. Uh, 
but that's kind of the idea, right? Is like uh, that there are right. certain like unspoken social codes when we're out and about in the world and Garfinkel and his team were like, you know, I, I, I would say probably non malignly like breaking those codes, right? Overstepping boundaries and things and basically seeing how do people react when kind of the unwritten rules of social discourse uh, get um, thwarted in some way. Yeah, this is basically just like one eighth of all TikToks made. Yes. <laughs> This is this is that kid uh, saying he was pickle Rick and woo woo wooing around on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> the TikTok is Garfinkelization machine. I basically yeah, yeah. We, we're all getting Garfinkel. <laughs> like I don't even want to look at that shit, and I'm getting Garfinkel. You uh, know? Yeah. So what happened in uh, City of Heroes, which is also like City of Villains? Apparently, those games were kind of like co-extant or something. Um, uh, the games were not PvP to begin with. Uh, and they ran for a couple of years without PvP, and then a PvP mode got introduced, and it was not well-received because so much of kind of the culture and, uh, like, the presuppositions among players about, like, how do you play this game when you come into it uh, mm -hmm. had been fostered by a, an environment, right, a game environment where there was no PvP. And so, like, typically they were more interested in, like, being cooperative and, like, working together that, like, the introduction of PvP uh, became just a huge flashpoint for a, 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 an eruption of grieving, basically. Griefing, I should say. Not grieving. People weren't mourning, but they were, mm -hmm. uh, uh, again, trolling each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, the... Uh uh, looking it up, City, City of Villains is the first expansion pack, and if you own, and it was standalone, you could play it by itself. But if you own the previous game, they were melded together for you. Oh, okay. So there you go. All right. Now you know. Yeah. So uh, basically, there's a, a brief interview with a guy, uh, David Myers, who when when the PvP mode launched, it had a whole bunch of rules associated with it. But those rules were kind of applicable only to the PvP mode and didn't really defer to like community consensus regarding prior standards of play. Uh, and so he just griefed people by following PvP rules at the expense of all of the other rules that had kind of bubbled up over the years. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, people didn't like it. Yeah, right. Well, and it's also a notable thing, right, of that uh, this is a really clear demonstration that social rules are culturally navigated. They are not necessarily inborn within the game object, right? right. Um, which kind of goes into the emotional thing, right? Like, wh where is it? Where do where do emotions emerge from, right? Are they from specific mechanics or are they from a cluster of different sets of expectations and ideas and mediations? Mm -hmm. um, uh, really clear pairing. I mean, it gets cited across this book quite a bit, but uh, Communities of Play, the Celia Pierce book that we also did an episode on, is it feels really resonant for this chapter specifically. And it, I mean, it does get cited. But mm -hmm. if you're curious about more of this kind of stuff and like how this operated, um, that, that book is pretty, pretty helpful for that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of this chapter, unless you have something else to say. No, okay. I, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, but I, I think you're right in a general sense that, like, this is where games went. And more importantly, right, like social play because of the ubiquity of the Internet. And it was pretty ubiquitous at the time this book was being written. And it has only gotten more so, right? Like, even straight up single player games in which there are no possible operations of network play there's they're still social play games right because mm -hmm. if you talk about it with <laughs> anyone 
<laughs> right undertale uh yeah right you know mm -hmm. we've run into that if you want to check out our undertale let's play that's going on right now you can go to youtube.com slash uh range touch youtube.com slash ranged touch uh, and uh, you, you can see that, but yeah, lots and lots of games at this point uh, have a anchor of here's how you should be doing the thing. You know that that is the largest complaint probably about FromSoft games, mm -hmm. um, which is that you can play the game. The games themselves provide lots of different routes for doing it, but within the social system of the game, there's a valorization of a very particular, very particular types of play. Mm -hmm. uh, and those, uh, you know, change the emotional resonance of those things, right? Like mm -hmm. there are some people, and I, 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 I would encourage people not to evaluate themselves against the community in this way, right? But there are some people who complete the game, but not, you know, single melee weapon only or whatever. And really legitimately seem to believe they haven't completed the game, right? Like, they don't believe that internally in themselves, they don't believe they beat it the quote-unquote right way. And mm -hmm. so this kind of social mediation, cultural mediation of the play experience is now shot through a huge amount of the play experience, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is, which is uh, I think, often unfortunate. I mean, this game, we're, I, I want to talk about this during the conclusion for the book, but... This game, is, or not this game, this <laughs> book is really mostly concerned with pro-social and positive affects yes. in games. Mm -hmm. And I think that that means that there's some missing pieces, but let, let's talk about that in the conclusion. Yeah. Uh, chapter three, then, is Bodies at Play, using movement design to create emotion and connection. And uh, this is a, a, a little chapter that's very much in uh, kind of the moment of, you know, the Wii, uh, the connect uh but that's not those aren't the only things that show up but mm -hmm. you know that sort of um late 2010s turn toward a uh, kinetic play of like having a controller that you swing around or or what have you um and basically the argument is that uh uh doing these kinds of like uh actual physical movements with your body uh results in uh particular types of emotional effects that are not the same emotional effects as you would have if you were playing a game by sitting there holding a controller mm -hmm. um and th i think that's true right like i i think if like you're up there in your living room like swinging around your little wiimote or whatever uh you have a different feeling than what you would have if you were sitting on the couch with your uh, uh switch or something and not doing any of the motion controls like uh you know your your body and your emotional state uh do link together um just uh, in terms of an intervention i would make in this chapter is i do think it kind of like flattens out uh some of how that works where there there's a because it is geared toward kind of a design logic right here is how you uh design for the optimal player experience well if you're doing this kind of motion game uh then you want them to do you know whatever the the good body motions are right um and i just uh uh don't think that it's necessarily like that one-to-one, -one, right? I don't think you can uh, uh, pin your hopes on designing for the right body emotion or the, yeah, the right body movement to then instill uh, the associated um, emotional state with that uh, body motion. Like I just, I don't think that's quite how that works. Or uh, I think taking that as being how it works is mm -hmm. that kind of design philosophy might not well, uh, uh, produce the results that you're looking for. I think that some of the claims here, like for me, I read them as overstated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. Like, I, I'm not even really critical of that uh, in a general sense, right? Like, this is a book 
that is designed to be read by people who want to know more about this and you want to highlight the, the positive potentials. And as a writer, you know, I, I've written a book. Uh, I've done this work, right? We've we've both done long form writing before. That's rhetorical and argumentative, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that's that's part of the deal uh, of being an academic and being a critic. Um, I get it, right? Like, of course, you would shave parts of these things off because ultimately, better to have people try this and, and operate with it than to immediately not try, right? Right? Like that's what this book is about. It's about giving people tools to maybe do things that are really useful and helpful and positive. And if those things don't work out, well, hopefully you figure that out in the design process, right? Like, right. This is not, uh, uh, this is not a key to success, right? This is a toolbox. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. And, and it, it would not be a very good toolbox of a book if it was like, here's all of my tools. And also here's like the precise weakness of each and every one and how you would break it. <laughs> right. Here's how to fuck up this hammer. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, but right. Exactly. Right. Uh, so I get it. Like, I'm not I'm not critical of, like, the rhetorical form there. But, like, reading this, this is the chapter that I really had the most, like, well, like, I, I have to accept a lot before I get into to this thing or before I can use these tools, I guess. Um, and um, it, there's some additional stuff you're highlighting this in your notes, too, right? There's, like, the mirror neurons argument, which is really dates this book you uh-huh. know that that was such a thing and you know coming out of literary studies i'm sure oh, that you experienced it too yeah that was all it, over my grad school experience was people writing right. about mirror neurons right so that mirror neurons are, are literally just uh you know the way of looking at people's brains and looking at what parts of people's brains light up and activate uh when they see other people doing things and you know it, it's uh at least when i was in graduate school similar it was about film mm-hmm. right um, in the original mirror neuron studies uh, that are cited most often, I think were about orangutans. Yeah. Uh, if I if I don't if not mistaken, and they were looking at orangutans, and uh, they would show them video of like an orangutan like eating a grape, mm-hmm. and then the centers in um, the orangutan's brain that lit up that the one you know so orangutan sitting with a headset on or, or really <laughs> electrodes probably on their head yeah uh basically looking like cybo man from yeah. uh, <laughs> what do you call the it lawnmower from, man yeah from the lawnmower man so uh, orangutan sitting there cybo manned up and is watching a video in the video another orangutan eats a grape and in the viewing orangutan's um uh, uh fmri or just uh, the electrode based i guess it's not fmri but in the output of the brain information they are getting uh the uh, pleasure centers of eating a grape light up mm-hmm. right and so everyone in academia in any kind of humanities field went oh my god when you read books about people doing stuff it's like you're doing it yeah right and when you watch films about people doing stuff it's like people doing it and i know the argument is more complicated than that i'm summarizing for a podcast please do not leave any comments um but you know that was a really um there was a lot of enthusiasm around that. And I have heard less about mirror neurons recently than I did in the past. Um, I do believe in the last data that I read, we were kind of unclear on if mirror neurons are actually in human beings or not. Yeah. Maybe that has been more clarified. Yeah, that was the last I heard of them, too, is that there is actually evidence suggesting that uh, what holds true for the orangutan, even if we're understanding that, like, correctly, right, what's going on there, uh, mm-hmm. might not hold true for human brains. Right. Right. And so, right, like I said, this chapter for me has a lot of if-thens. I thought it was interesting to read. Uh, and the thing also to think about here, too, which is pretty interesting, is that the all of these game mechanics, for the most part, all of these kind of physical gameplay things, they've been supplanted by VR. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, kind of a thing. 
Oh, I, I was also thinking here too, like, oh, we're gonna get to the part where like some of these systems didn't recognize, you know, people with darker skin color, right? Uh, and that never showed up. Yeah. Uh, then we have the the next chapter, the final chapter, bridging the mm-hmm. distance to create empathy and connection. Uh, and this is uh again sort of follows the pattern of uh many of the chapters kind of post the in- well actually even the intro falls into this where it's like we need to talk about uh. Uh, choice and flow, right? The, each chapter kind of mm-hmm. has some key terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so the key terms here are sort of like the key ideas for design, uh, the ways that uh, uh, designers create connection in uh, games. And I'm quoting here from page 110, uh, the sharing and exchanging of digital objects, uh, the cultivation of, quote, summer camp, unquote, like context for play, and the shaping of hobbyist and activist communities around play. So, uh, uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, being able to send little gifts to, uh, all your friends in World of Warcraft, right? Or in, in one case, I think actually the person we spend the most time here with is, um, uh, a woman who I think, I think it's a woman who, like, taught her daughter to play World of Warcraft, and then, like, she has, like, all of the gifts, like, from when her daughter first started playing, like, she was constantly, like, sending her little, uh, gifts in, in the mail system, and so she has, like, mm-hmm. a special vault somewhere where she keeps all the things that her daughter sent her. Yeah, yeah, there's a really interesting, um, yeah, yeah, what's, I guess what's notable here is, like, two kind of things are happening in this chapter. One is... What happens when you play a network game that fosters intimacy and kind of learning? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, how do you learn from other people in a digitally mediated environment? How do you create long-term connections with them? You know, uh, I guess like a feedback loop of, of emotion with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really glad that this is written because this is just not something that's really discussed all that often. Um and is this where parasociality comes up in this book? I think it is, right? Uh, it has come up a couple of times, actually. Yeah, because it yeah, came up. Uh, uh, it came up the first time with the guy who married the dating sim character. Right, right. I just think about that here, right? Like, what's happening in this chapter around like this distal relationship of emotion that's afforded by. Uh, by video games, it, it really that that has that is the conversation that happens around parasociality with internet people uh, in in now, mm-hmm. right? You know, like this idea that there's there's you and there's the interface and then it, inside the interface, right, Galloway style, right? Uh-huh. I mean, or anti Galloway style. Uh, inside of that thing, there are other people and they're doing stuff, right? And you create this like very intimate connection with them uh, over longitudinal watching. Um, and what's interesting to me, I guess, is that, again, you know, the Internet changes a lot of these arguments or the, the increased ubiquity, the acceleration of Internet ubiquity, which is like, I don't think games create this this feeling like YouTube video. YouTube videos outweigh the creation of this feeling of intimacy, of distributed in- intimacy, like by 5000 mm-hmm. <laughs> percent over, ga- you know, over video games. Right. Yeah. Like. I have no experience of of intimacy with like Destiny Two players who I'm jumping around with or like emoting with in the lobby, right? Yeah. But, like my my farming YouTubers I watch, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, I, how dare you get between me and my beautiful boys, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm invested in their crops are failing, right? Right. You no, know? oh my god, their pepper crop, right? It, it, similarly, like, um. Uh, say the 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 summer camp like context for his bister this is about like summer camp here it's not like a literal summer camp but it's about um right. 
uh, the, the summer camp is like being distilled down to kind of like a label to explain sort of the phenomenon she wants to get at, um, which is this idea right. that uh, when you box up your children and send them off to summer camp, and I've never been to a summer camp, so I'm I'm like working into. I have also never been to summer camp, <laughs> right? So right. I cannot. Uh, yeah, there's nothing better than when a commanding metaphor in a book is something you've never experienced, and so then therefore have no access to. Right. I, uh, so my understanding here is like warping entirely off of uh, like popular culture representations, right? Books and movies I've seen about summer camps. Um, uh, but the, this idea that uh. Well, what you do at a summer camp is you get a bunch of kids, uh, many of whom don't know each other, and you, like, throw them into the woods, and they're all uncomfortable and awkward, but, like, they are in a uh, context, a sort of space, uh, where they can safely kind of step outside of themselves and kind of, like, you know, uh, 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 push their own boundaries a little bit. And that the, like, summer camp experience, I guess, uh, question mark, again, I've never been, I don't really know what, what the point of a summer camp is exactly, uh, but the... Implication here is that like one of the things you like one of the reasons summer camp exists is because it does encourage uh, like this kind of experimentation and boundary pushing for these kids that they're like meeting new people, people that they might not have met. Otherwise, they're uh, partaking in activities they might not have otherwise done, uh, so on and so forth. And like one of the key uh, uh, examples here for Isbister is the game Journey. Uh, mm-hmm. where uh, occasionally you run into another player uh, who is someone you don't know and you have a very limited kind of uh, a tool set for communicating with them, uh, but you kind of have to just sort of learn to trust them to in order to like continue on in the game and to solve certain puzzles. Um, and mm-hmm. you can develop uh, relationships with these uh, strangers, basically, who you have just met in this digitally mediated fashion. Um, and I think that's all well and good. But the thing that I was also thinking of uh, uh, in terms of like this summer camp idea, or at least how I'm understanding it, is like this is kind of how like a lot of Internet communities in general, I think, work. And in particular, I was mm-hmm. thinking of like fan communities um, like uh, uh, you know, Homestuck, not to constantly bring this up forever and always now, uh, but uh, uh, I, there were comments uh, that uh, Andrew Hussey made uh, with regard to like the Homestuck fandom that suggested that they sometimes thought of it as kind of like a summer camp experience and in precisely this way of like, here's a bunch of kids who don't really know each other and like now they're going to like ping pong off each other and learn stuff and like, you know, uh, do projects together and so on. Right. Um, so, uh uh, I was just thinking about that again, uh, the, the acceleration or the ubiquity of, of the Internet and kind of like what are the communities that it brings us into and how do how are we expected to, to interact and so on? Yeah, I mean, a thing that's really interesting about this, too, is like the voice of this of of this, uh, I guess, intervention. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of like what what does this kind of pro social distributed play and journey specifically look like? Right. Like. The voices of that get to be Stephen Totillo, Eric Kane, and Jason Killingsworth, right? Mm-hmm. Who are all uh, kind of, you know, they're they're game critics who probably would not, and I don't mean this in any kind of disparaging way, right? But like, especially when this was written and when Journey comes out, they are game critics who probably are not seeking out experiences like this anywhere other than a commercial game like Journey, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, I don't get a sense that any of those people were interested in like going and looking at art games or experiencing those things. I mean, they are they are uh, commercial game uh, reviewers, critics, 
you know, thinkers, right? Uh, ex- explicitly and exclusively uh, in all of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jason Killingsworth, probably most famous uh, for at this point, most well known at this point, right? For uh, creating a publishing company that publishes books that are like deep dive critical looks at those big, big games, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he wrote a book on Dark Souls um, uh, with uh, co wrote it with uh, Keza McDonald. So, you know, it's the kind of thing of like, what, you kind of have your thumb on the scale a little bit if you're looking to the crowd that is going to see this inherently as novel, right. To look for the kind of poetic language of it. Right. Right. Um, there, there's a little bit of, well, what did other art game people think of it? Right. How did they engage with that? Did they find it as kind of charitable, engaging, whatever, um, or did they find it different? And is Bister's in those communities? And, and I kind of wonder why those voices are not here, um, to kind of compare and contrast with people who are kind of just struck by the wonderment of the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, the the you know that kind of thing uh, around it and yeah similarly you know I I really thought about the summer camp metaphor that carries through because there's such a lot of there's just a lot of stuff that's attached to that right mm-hmm. you know probably the most common summer camp in my region where I was growing up would be something like vacation Bible school yeah right where the purpose of summer camp in that context that's not to to have experiences unlike the ones you had before it's in fact to do the opposite it's to have the same experience you have every sunday but what if you could have it all week as a form of daycare right uh right because you're not in school during the summer right, right. and if you are uh, if you like that and if you think that's uh, like positive culture stuff, then you could say, well, it fosters a heavier connection with people's faith, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it allows you to kind of do that work and, and think through that. And if you're critical of that, then it's a form of long form and uh, sometimes violent, right? You know, like I grew up with people who went to vacation Bible school and got disciplined oh, yeah. and harmed, right? And so it's like mm-hmm. a form of, it can be, in its most negative form, a form of religious indoctrination and sometimes abuse, just straight up, right? Right. And I think, I don't know about summer camps other than that, but my coming into this, that commanding metaphor of the summer camp is not one of kind of what would be shown here is like good liberalism. And I don't mean liberalism, like the political perspective, but liberalism in like, there's an open field of possibility and you experiment within that to find the good for yourself. Right. And then that kind of creates a better human or a better person. Um, summer camp in my imaginary is, is absolutely antithetical to that in some ways. Um, you know, or, or in my experience growing up, it was, right. uh, but at the same time, David, who was on our previous episode on well met, you know, he works at a summer camp all year long and he teaches kids how to blacksmith. And it's exactly the thing that she's talking about. And so, you know, there's, there's a, to me, it's like, well, there's some negative that's in here. And, and maybe for me, I'm, I'm interested in the negative affect, the negative emotion, but it sounded like you wanted to talk about summer camp. Oh, no, no I was just going to like, uh, uh, agree with you on the vacation Bible school thing, right? That this is part of the, um, like, uh, summer camp is presented here, as I already said, as a, a place for like, uh, you know, moving outside of comfort zones uh right. having your like walking into situations where your boundaries are going to be intentionally pushed to uh in in the like sort of sanguine imaginary right be more pro-social like well we're all going to learn to blacksmith or we're going to we know how to uh uh do a canoe together or something uh but mm-hmm. yes yeah, so, as someone who also experienced a lot of vacation Bible school, uh, the the boundaries there were about like, hey, here's how what you're thinking and have you how you have been thinking is wrong. And we're going to push you into a different way of thinking. And, um, you know, go check out the Needful Things episode of Just King Things to see how well to get a sense of how this worked out for for little Michael, who uh, really had a problem with specifically religious authority figures telling him what to do. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I totally <laughs> forgot about that connection. Uh, she was not your teacher. <laughs> no, she was not. Uh, nor uh, were the ladies <laughs> at Vacation Bible School, who I constantly made extremely upset. <laughs> uh, but 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 notably, right? And and look again to reiterate from before, the purpose of this book is not to like get into these things, as you put it really well, Michael. It's not like here's all the tools and here's how to break them. Right? right. Here's how they don't work. Um. But to me, it's like, well, like, I can't I can't think summer camp. I can't think through this metaphor of, uh, you know, and if it's a commanding metaphor, metaphors do work. Right. We have to think about that mm-hmm. rhetorically. And I can't think about it without thinking about how it's classed, um, how it's raced, mm-hmm. how it's regionalized. Right. And so it's like, it, I agree. I think games in this example, they might be like summer camp, but I think I'm a lot more negative on that. Right. Mm-hmm. In a general sense, like. I think games tell you what to do quite often. I think they normalize you. I think they ideologically constrain you. I think that they have a certain um, discursive like arena that they operate in. And if games don't operate in those discursive arenas, they're often rejected out of hand. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think some of the greatest games ever made are ones that in their moment are were pilloried or attacked or harassed or whatever. Right? Uh, you know the 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 amount of animus that people can in the games community can uh pull together to hate a thing that is slightly out of the norm is astonishing mm-hmm. like truly like really and truly i've known you know we've both known many independent developers who have just been brutalized by this by the by the idea that you could create a condition that is slightly outside of uh, any kind of normative existence so um that you know that that haunts me with that i can't not think of that mm-hmm. i can't can't really think through it but it sounds like we are in the end game now. Yeah, the end game is the little coda at the end of this book. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, uh, I can summarize my version and I know you had something you wanted to revisit here. Uh, mm-hmm. But the basic like hope that his Bister has at the end is like, hey, uh, you know, that we already talked about the the audience constructed at the beginning, right? The implied, implied audience here is someone being maybe a bit more skeptical of. Uh, how games work or or like the emotional um, affordances of them. Now that we've talked about that, uh, I hope you see some of the ways that these things might actually, uh, you know, that they might actually be good for you or like you might actually have authentic emotional experiences with games. Uh, hopefully, as we move forward into the future, we will be able to like develop and refine and hone these ideas in ways that allow us to create uh, increasingly meaningful and unique uh, game-based emotional experiences. Right. Yeah, I wrote the quote down. Games quote games have the capacity to take us into a different emotional territory than any other medium. I mean, that's that's the upshot at the end, right? right. Like, here's all the ways that games can do this thing, you know, and and kind of pr- produce emotion. Um, and you know, I, I, I definitely am not going to get deep into it, but like, I'm deeply skeptical of the idea that games uniquely do this, right. Or that these emotions are different. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think anything that we, we come to around this, I, we could find a film or we can find a novel that does similar work. You know, I, I, I'm deeply skeptical of this kind of medium specificity argument, but yeah, I mean, my whole thought kind of all the way through. And again, like th- this is a critical comment in the sense of like, I've engaged with the book and then I came to this thought. This is not like uh this is why the book is bad. Uh, you know, so, so please listener, take that to heart, right? This, this is a build upon thought. This is not a, uh, this is why this is flawed thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, like the things that, that are, are most notable about emotional interactions are negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why 
Isbister focuses on pro-social and communitarian and positive emotions here because this is implicit in the book, I think, but it's actually kind of easy to make negative emotions, right? Like games are really good at making you feel frustrated. They're really good at making you feel scared. They're really good at making you feel angry. I mean, we we, we Uh, sort of uh, skated over it, but in the the body chapter, uh, she does talk about like the the two games, like the pain station and the other one, like the games that just like straight up physically hurt you (laughs) if you do something wrong. Yeah, right. But that's not Resident Evil 8, right? right? Which is, you know what I mean? Which is doing horror. You're right. Yes, those are in there. And and ultimately, like, those are good intros to the, the pain station. Right. Uh, and those kind of games that harm you. But also, it's notable that those are the examples that everyone has used since they were made, because those are kind of the notable examples, mm-hmm. right? Um, was it Deep Sea? I mean, that's a game that I wish was brought up more often in these conversations. I, I'm forgetting the developer's name. But I think the name of the game is Deep Sea. And it is a game in which you are exploring an underwater facility uh, that's in complete and total pitch black. And so the game controller, uh, I think you're holding the controller in your hand and you put a mask over your head, like a gas mask, a full uh, uh, like um, coverage mask. And it has a microphone in it. And uh, there's a monster that is going around a 3D space. And if you breathe too loud while the monster is near you, it will it'll attack you. So it'll kill you. So it's a game that that constrains your face. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and keeps you from seeing. Right. It, 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 it Mechanically, you are blind. And uh, and then it discourages you from breathing. Mm hmm. And it makes you make little shallow breaths and it amplifies your own breathing into your head. So you always think that you are breathing louder than you actually are. Mm-hmm. All right, it's kind of made as an as a uh, um, uh, as an installation game. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the I'm, I'm blanking on the person's name, but I think the game has been released in like there's a schematic to be, build it yourself if you wanted to do that. Mm. Um and and people had panic attacks and people like uh you know uh hyperventilated while playing the game you know and or just like got lightheaded cuz they stopped breathing in order to do the game like that to me is like okay like that's a painful game right, right. like that's a game that like instills a deep terror in you and like people don't like playing it and so you know <laughs> based on the reportage i read at the time people didn't like it yeah. <laughs> you know it's no no good um that to me is interesting right like you know but i understand why his bister sticks away from it right um but but i do have to be honest that my like predilection is toward the negative feeling and the confusing emotion right Mm -hmm. like this this book assumes that the some of the better emotions or better ways of uh putting emotions in your games is to have them be crystal clear you know intimacy uh excitement um, empathy, right? You know, the idea of being able to see someone in a, in a bad situation and understand that and then go somewhere, f- you know, from that, uh, and do some sort of pro-social, uh, idea from that. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm skeptical of the empathy in games kind of conversations. And I, I think that negative emotions are actually quite helpful and confusing emotions are quite helpful. Like, I, I think games should have more to do with shame and like uh, immortality, which I know mm-hmm. that you played, you know, I think is a game that does a quite good job of making you feel ashamed of watching some of the things that are happening in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's valuable. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is I'm, I made this comment in my notes actually kind of at the beginning because that's when Isbister kind of lays this all out. Right. Is that um, uh, uh she is going to focus on kind of these positive emotions. And like you, I'm, I'm interested in kind of the, the negative or at the very least the confusing, the, I like, I think it's really interesting when an object delivers to me an emotional state, 
uh, where it seems like the designed takeaway for me is like, I don't know how I felt about that. And like what I'm supposed to do now is think through that feeling and figure out what it is I felt and come to some sort of maybe clarity on what that experience was and what it means. Yeah, we're just poison postmodernists, Michael. <laughs> just just deeply disturbed Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can never escape our our uh, dogmatic leanings toward uh, Marx and his Look. dreaded love of ambiguity. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> Hey, look, uh, uh, you know, capital's a vampire. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I can be anything. Uh, but yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I think we both have that, uh, you know, charitably a predilection, uh, uncharitably bias mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> that, you know, prevents us from like wholeheartedly going into into the thing. But I also think those things are important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and to be fair, I guess that those are things in this playful thinking series that the the art of failure does get into that a little bit. Um, and uncertainty of games does get into that a little bit, but those are also both kind of reconstitutive books, right? Yeah. They're they're about why those things are good and ultimately pro uh, pro social and beneficial. Um, uh, you know, I, and there are games that have ambiguous statuses to that that are very canonical in the study of games that don't show up here, right? Like uh, September twelfth mm-hmm. is a game mm-hmm. where the emotional recognition of that kind of procedural thing is commonly discussed and understood and that doesn't show up here right because it's hard to talk about that kind of game in this context i think yeah um but that's uh, and you know to, just to gesture back at what i said at the beginning like this is you know what i mean when i said like uh, uh when i sat down to read this book and i'm thinking oh emotion by design i am hoping it's going to get into maybe some of these issues of like ambiguous emotions and so on and so forth but no really what this book is right. trying to do is something very different from that from very different from what I would do if I were writing a book with a similar title and that's fine. Um, and if anything that we've said, uh, sounds interesting to you, it's, uh, probably pretty easy to check out this book because it's a, it's a brief Mm -hmm. read. Uh, it'll give you everything you need to know. And as you've already said, Cameron, apparently it's already being widely taught. So, uh, there you go. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, you know, for any kind of criticism I have, I I think the marker of a good book or an interesting book, at least, right? Good and bad book is whatever. But an interesting book, a book that's worth engaging with is that uh, there's very little here that I would just dismiss out of hand. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of like, I don't agree with this on the claim level. And so then therefore all the then, you know, uh, if there's a claim, then there's an argument. Right. There's very here little here where I'm like the claim is something that I disagree with on principle or empirically or like ideologically and so then therefore the then doesn't matter. There's very little of that. It, 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 for the most part, it's a book that if you if you disagree with it, it's useful to disagree with it and helpful to kind of argue with and against it, which is I think what these playful thinking games are about. I, I don't have any kind of interiority to that, but that's my impression, mm-hmm. right? They are meant to help start the conversation. They are meant to help make very clear the bounds of particular kinds of arguments. Uh, and then you can do something with them. And I think that this is a helpful book for doing things with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, and I think here there's an understated or an, uh, um, um, an under argument here that's about empathy in games that we haven't gotten to. But I think it's really important and actually kind of ties into some things that I've been writing recently. So hopefully I'll be able to maybe engage with this. There's particularly a reading of the game Hush mm-hmm. um, that I would I remember playing back when it came out that I was 
I just I just played back then and thought all oh, that's interesting and now I'm a little bit more deeply critical of um, mm-hmm. in a kind of a fundamental way. But but yeah, I think it's a really interesting book. Um, uh, I think it was helpful to engage with. And uh, you would never self promo this way, Michael. But I'm going I'm going to self promo right, which is like it's interesting to hear you say that about the book, being that you are someone who has who has done has made a game. I mean, you've made many games, but you've made at least a game, you know, My Father's Long, Long Legs, that is canonical and like making people feel scared with a little, with not a lot of artifice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a lot of mechanics in that game. There's not a lot of, of uh, stuff. It's mostly execution, right? It, it was your kind of clarity of vision there of how to make people feel a particular kind of way. And it still works. People still talk about it all the time, yeah. you know, as a thing. And people are still constantly realizing that you made it, which is always <laughs> funny to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but you know what I mean? Like, I, and so your version of this book would be very different, but also there's not a lot of tools in this book to analyze, you know, a game like that, that does that work. Right, right, right. And not to like center myself too much, but that's just, it's such a great illustration that uh, for his Bister, the, you know, components of games are choice and flow and I like my father's long, long legs is a game that quite specifically I designed to be critical of the idea of choice. Uh, right. right? right. In sort of the first instance, like it, uh, uh, it's a game where it feels like you have choice, but you actually don't. And like, that's the uh, sorry to spoil my own work here if you aren't familiar, but like that's the reveal, right? Is like you choice is almost uh, at least 50% something that a player projects onto the apparatus in front of them rather than anything the apparatus is doing. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think it's a game that's conducive to a flow state because that's not the sort of thing I'm interested in. I, 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 mm-hmm. I don't think you're like, man, if I, if I just read this uh, that much better, I'm going to get really scared at the end, <laughs> right? That's not the, the right, uh, teleology right. there. <laughs> Hmm, reading this is so just difficult enough that it's keeping me going, right? No, there's like this absolute nightmarish friction in that game that, that you know, like sucks. And not like the game sucks, but like the, for me, the affect of experiencing that thing and moving through that game is like, uh, uh, <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> there's going to be a thing. And like, you know, the the expectation is that something terrible is going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's dread. I mean, you know, it's a game designed around, I don't know if that was the intent, but it feels like it's a game designed around how do you use some fairly simple uh, mechanisms to create dread, which is notoriously not a flow state yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, not choice-based. It's actually the fact that your choices don't matter that would generate something like dread. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that yeah, that's all to say, right? Like, I and that I don't mean that to be like and so then therefore this book is useless. I say that to then say, well, I would love for someone to take this book and in conversation with this book talk about things like uh you know Resident Evil 8 or, or I guess Resident Evil 7 probably more likely. It's got a little bit more of that going on. Mm-hmm. Uh or My Father's Long Long Legs or Soma uh you know and the differences between how Soma has the uh, monsters hurt you mode and the monsters don't hurt you mode. And how does that change that kind of thing? And how does that change the emotional function there? And can you compare that back to a game like Hush, which is ostensibly a horror game? It's about people being murdered by other people, mm-hmm. uh, but which doesn't play in that arena at all. I just, there's a way of taking this book to push it beyond this book. And I think that's, you know, that's the best thing that can happen to an author, I think, is for their work to be transformed and move beyond the, this thing. I think, um, Personally, my own work, right? I'm not interested in being 
defensive or protective or whatever of, of the work I do. I, I hope to God someone <laughs> takes it and does something other than what I can do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if the only thing is there is what I can do with it when I wrote it, it, it seems like it wasn't useful um, or productive or helpful um, for like people doing stuff in the world. So anyway, I enjoyed this book. I think I've enjoyed every... While having similar like conceptual criticisms, I've enjoyed every playful thinking book that I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're always pretty good at doing this work of like, here's the kernel, think more about the kernel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's great. We don't know what our next book is. No, we don't. We we got to look. We got to figure it out. Uh, there, I think there's a bunch of stuff that we we could be doing. Um, if you have suggestions, the day that this comes out, mm-hmm. you can send it to at range touch on Twitter. Dot com. I think due to next month being pretty constrained for both of us, we would love to have a book that's short. Yeah. So if you've got a show, if you've got a book sub 200 pages, Michael and I are doing some traveling. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, maybe maybe something, maybe content will come out of that. I don't know yet. But uh, anyway, uh, thanks so much. For <laughs> I'm running for mayor of Chicago, everyone. Oh, <laughs> why? Why don't tell them? It's supposed to be a surprise. They get there and you're just on the ballot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Uh, go to, if you, if you don't mind, go to, uh, if you listen on Apple podcasts, uh, hit that five star button on there. And if you hit the, uh, the five star button and you, uh, l- allow me to keep talking while I pull mm-hmm. this up. No, if you, uh, if you hit the five star button and you leave a funny review, a good review that we like, I'll read it on the air. Let's see. <laughs> This is by Wanderall. Subject. Touch the monkeys. They're staring at you the whole time, unblinking, not moving, just waiting. Someone forgot to program them to react when you touch them. You stop gambling, bothered by the monkeys, and begin this podcast to learn about much more than our own monkeyness, one book at a time. (laughs) This is by Upright Virgin, which I think maybe I've read before, but I'm going to do it again. You ready? Uh Uh-huh. My favorite Metal Gear podcast. Now, whenever I boot up a video game, I think about how I'd rather be playing Lego Racers. <laughs> there you go. So, five stars. Leave a, a funny review, an interesting review, a helpful review, and I'll read it on the show. You can also go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. The link is in the description below this episode. You can go there to support us. If you support us at $3 a month, you get access to our notes in a helpful PDF format. But also, if you go to $5 and maybe even $10 a month, number one, you support the show, right? Like, it takes a lot of time to do these shows. Uh, and uh, you're supporting that, but also you can get all kinds of bonus episodes. Um, in the Homestuck Made This World bonus episode feed, you can hear us talking about Grant Morrison's comic Animal Man, uh, an upcoming episode on Arrested Development, seasons one and two, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff. And also uh, Just King Things uh, bonus episodes where we talk about movie adaptations of Stephen King. You can also just check out those shows. Homestuck Made This World is uh, us reading through Homestuck very uh, patiently. And over the course of a year, it just kind of finished up. And we're now onto our Undertale Let's Play over on YouTube. But even if you have no interest in, in Homestuck or anything like that, it's kind of a deep dive into internet history and methods for doing internet history. And also talking about a work that changes over the course of many years. And so I think it's probably interesting to you for that. There's a lot of talking about fandom, too. Mm-hmm. So I I feel pretty confident if you like Game Study Study Buddies in a general sense, you'll enjoy Homestuck Made This World, even if you don't care about or you have antipathy toward Homestuck. It it does more than just that. 
And then Just King Things, which is our show where we read through the works of Stephen King in publication order. We've done a lot of those episodes, and that's a fun show to do. And I think that if you like our method for reading academic books here, uh, then you'll probably like our method for talking about pop fiction over there, which also has a lot of cross-application if you like thinking about the popular, which we do too. We got a new show coming in the summer that's currently unannounced, but it's going to be a big kind of read show. There's going to be it's the replacement for Homestuck Made This World on the Range Touch Network. Uh, keep an eye out for that. That's really good. That's another reason to go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch, in order to get information about that when it drops. Uh, it's going to be big. People are really going to like it, I think. We're really excited about doing it. We're already doing prep work for it now. And uh, I think you'll like it a lot. So uh, tune in next month. For the next book that's currently unannounced, you can find out more about that at twitter.com slash ranged touch. And we're also on co-host at ranged touch on co-host. Mm-hmm. We, we make some posts over there and I think that's it. So we will be back in a month with more game study, study buddies, and you can hear us on lots of other things. If you subscribe to those other shows, Michael, you want to take us out with the catchphrase. Remember everybody, the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>